National Review Institute is cruising to Alaska. Join NR writers and other thought leaders for a special vacation from June 16 to June 23 aboard Holland America's Nordum. If you're feeling especially adventurous, you can participate in an optional land tour before the cruise from June 12 to June 15. Enjoy fine dining, entertainment, and world-class accommodations as you rub elbows with NR personalities and other special guests during panel discussions, breakout sessions, exclusive 1955 Society events, and more. Make it a family trip! This year we've added youth programming for your children and grandchildren. Destinations include Glacier Bay, Skagway, and Juneau. To register, visit nricruise.com. That's nricruise.com. Preparing for the melee in Milwaukee is the Chinese economy cratering and Joe Biden in Maui. We'll discuss all this more on this special listless edition of the editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Noah Rothman, and the dominator, Dominic Pino. You are, of course, listening to a National You podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Ball and Branch Sheets and Made in Cookware. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So Charlie, Ron DeSantis's streak of uh, bad luck Bad coverage, whatever you want to call it, has continued now with a listless controversy. He supposedly was insulting MAGA voters by calling them listless vessels. And this uh, long answer about how he can't make loyalty to Donald Trump, I believe was unnamed in this uh, spiel, the the North Star of the Republican Party or conservatism. And if we did that, and he didn't say they, if we do that, we would become listless vessels, and that's a bad thing. This is, uh, if it's an insult, it's one of the the mildest uh, insults ever hurled at uh, a a group of people. But what do you make of it? Well, I wouldn't describe what has happened as bad luck. This has been contrived. The sentiment that Ron DeSantis expressed is not only correct, but given that he's running against Donald Trump in a primary is inevitable. I wholly reject the idea that it is in some way offensive to criticize Donald Trump or to try to take his place as the Republican nominee. The double standard here is infuriating. Trump, it seems, can say absolutely anything about anyone, including Republican primary voters or Republican politicians or successful conservative leaders. And that's either part of the rough and tumble of politics or it's necessary to change the status quo. But the moment that DeSantis does the same thing, or anyone, for that matter, does the same thing, then we're all supposed to be outraged The idea here is to make it impossible for anybody to say anything that is in any way critical of Donald Trump without pretending that those criticisms are aimed at Americans or real Americans or conservatives or Republicans or Republican primary voters or anyone else who is favored 
in the moment. On the substance, first off, DeSantis is correct. There is nothing that he said that is incorrect or offensive or that should be offensive. It is true that the Republican Party and American politics more generally should not be a cult of personality. If you think otherwise, you are the problem. Likewise, it is true that a movement that takes its cues from one person, that a movement that is so malleable and protean that it shifts in the wind with a capricious figure such as Donald Trump, and of course DeSantis was talking about him because he mentioned Truth Social and Donald Trump is the only person who uses that in the world, is not going to be durable. I think this two-step is the core problem in our politics on the right at the moment. That we have to get past the cult of personality, but that anyone who tries is immediately accused of perfidy. We need more of this from DeSantis. We need more of this from Tim Scott. We need more of this from (laughs) Vivek Ramaswamy, Donald Trump's press secretary. It can't just be Chris Christie. It can't just be the center-right organs that lack credibility among Republican primary voters. If Republicans wish to replace Donald Trump, then they are going to have to take aim at the hold he has over the party. I don't recommend that DeSantis talks only about this. But yes, this is important. And I think most important of all is that he's right. One of the reasons I'm a conservative is I don't like being obliged to say things that aren't true, lest I offend people. I think it's important, necessary, to speak the truth and describe things accurately. And I'm wholly unmoved by the idea that to do so is mean. Well, that's the position that the critics of this comment, which was not akin to deplorables, which was an insult, which was not akin to Mitt Romney's 47% comment, which although it had some truth about it, still cast many people as sponges, but was directly related, materially connected to the primary process in which we are now engaged and was true. And I hope that DeSantis, as he has done in other circumstances, refuses to apologize or back down or mitigate this and just says, nope, I am running as a guy with policy ideas and fixed promises that are not going to sway in the wind. I will not, I will not back down. Yeah, so Dominic, one thing that was notable about this listless vessels comment is just what an oblique criticism it was of of Trump and the phenomenon, the more straightforward way to say it would just be, look, Donald Trump is mercurial, he's self-interested, and we can't make loyalty to him our ultimate test. You know, that that would be a clear, succinct sentence that would say it. He doesn't want to say it, this kind of thing, that directly, because he sees the reaction he gets uh, even saying it less directly the way he did the other day. Yeah, I think that's right. I think Charlie's right, too, that, you know, it's good to hear somebody finally making this case against Trump that's not named Chris Christie. Um, but I think uh, I think you're right, too, that it it, it, it is not it was not direct using this kind of strange metaphor of listless vessels is just kind of uh, makes it even more obscure. 
And, um, you know, I used to, uh, maybe you remember conservatives used to complain about snowflakes getting their feelings hurt and, uh, you know, facts don't care about your feelings. And these used to be very popular things that conservatives uh, cared about or, and, and said a lot. But uh, but now it seems like uh, for some reason with people who vote for Donald Trump in primaries, we have to treat them like they're very, very delicate and that they can't handle uh, criticism of their guy or criticism of what uh, that guy has done to the overall Republican Party. Again, the, the facts are pretty clear here. Ever since he got lucky running against the least popular human being in the history of American politics in 2016, uh, Donald Trump has uh, has 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 lost uh, in in 2020. Um, the Republican Party, uh, the candidates he's been in, that he has endorsed uh, in midterm elections have underperformed and have resulted in Republicans being unable to take back control of Congress as they should have uh, in, in, in 2022, uh, taking over after in, in the first uh, midterm after a, a new president comes in, which is always a, a time when the opposition party is supposed to do well. And especially now where you have a very unpopular Democratic president who is uh, overseeing a, a economy that a lot of Americans see as, as lackluster. And uh, that's the top issue right now, and it's something to talk about. But instead, uh, we are still bogged down in these uh, you know, sort of obscure metaphors about uh, voters who apparently you're not allowed to talk uh, talk about in any negative way at all. So, Noah, of course, we had the leaked debate pointers from the DeSantis Super PAC last week. And one notable item was you need to attack Vivek. And one of your responses, which has played into Vivek's hands, of course, it's given Vivek more attention. There's been a little bit of a, uh, a Vivek uh, media moment here, and it comes simultaneous uh, with Vivek uh, weird statements about uh, September 11th. He said, I don't believe the 9-11 commission. Now he's focused that on the role of the Saudis on 9-11 and actually he has a point there. And then there's a statement that he made in an interview with The Atlantic where he was talking about uh, maybe there were government agents on the planes that hit the towers and we'd want to know. It probably weren't any government agents on the plane, but, but we'd, we'd, we'd want to know. And then went on to talk, talk about government agents possibly being in the, the crowd on January 6th. What do you make of all this? So he says... Vivek says in the subsequent interview around these comments, were there American agents on these planes? Quote, maybe the answer is zero. It probably is zero for all I know. Right? And then he goes on to say, well, if we investigated January 6th as thoroughly as we have, which presumably he finds absurd, then why aren't we? Con why didn't we conduct as thorough an investigation into 9-11? Maybe the most investigated act of domestic terrorism in the history of this country. Then he says, oh, it's ridiculous, quote, ridiculous to compare these two events, January 6th and 9-11. They, quote, don't belong in the same conversation. And then he says, I'm not questioning what we, this is not something I'm staking anything out on. So what are you doing? What are you doing in the public sphere? You're practically calling yourself irresponsible, reckless. This is the nonsense that follows the just asking questions line. Because they don't actually care about the answers. They don't want the answers to the questions they're just asking. What they want to do is introduce into the public bloodstream uh, seditious notions uh, about the perfidy of the American government and the media and how everybody's pulling the wool over your eyes. And then when you dare 
question them and question their motives and values. And just basic command of the facts, they perform this hilarious dramatic soccer flop for the benefit of the referees, being you, being us. And this is exactly what the this cultural left does in this country. It's a phenomenon that the MAGA right knows well. They call it cry-bullying. It's very similar to what's happening with this listless vessels nonsense. The idea, back to that, if you're offended by the idea that there are some durable principles around which we need to organize, that a political movement can survive in perpetuity organizing around, you're confessing to the substance of the charge. And voters want to hear about this. Kristen Solchus-Anderson has a focus group today in the New York Times, which is a profoundly depressing read. But you should read it because these voters, at the same time as they express undying fealty to Donald Trump, do want to hear what he wants to get done in his second term and want to hear the same thing from other candidates in the race. They're, they've been trained to respond to criticisms of Trump as they would respond to criticisms of themselves. And it is training. It is so apparent in the strained coverage of things like ephemeral cultural controversies, Vivek on 9-11, anybody who gets crosswise of a certain type of person, the idea of this avatar, this caricature who serves as uh, the, the figurehead, a non-existent figurehead of this form of poisonous class consciousness, it all just sort of happens automatically now. And it is the result, it, it's Pavlovian in this response. Dom is right. These are all metaphors. All we're talking about here are metaphors. And it's really difficult to have a conversation around them because, as Vivek admits, it's all so irresponsible and ultimately just ephemeral. It will pass from the stage without having any real effect on our politics, so it just serves as this, uh, as this point of contention for no other purpose than to have some form of contention. So he contends, Noah, I saw a clip from him uh, on Caitlin Collins the other night. He says that he did not say what the Atlantic writer says, that, that all, all the stuff that he supposedly said about 9-11 and agents on the plane was really about January 6th, and he's somehow been misquoted, and there's apparently a tape of this, and Vivek said... Of course there's a tape of it. Yes. He was interviewed. Yeah, so this should be easily established whether he's well, There weren't any, there weren't any planes involved in January 6th, so I, I'm not exactly sure, but... Yeah, it's hard to understand how... Uh, just, but do we know if the tapes were manipulated, yeah. Rich? Yeah, how do, we how do we know if these as are legitimate general, tapes? As a Where general are the real rule tapes? in American public discourse, if you're ever, asked, if you're ever uh, multiple times having to clarify comments you made about 9-11, it's a really bad sign. Mm -hmm. So, Charlie, this will be um, will make Vivek a, a target if he wasn't already on Wednesday night. Uh, potential juicy target for Chris Christie. I think DeSantis also has got to watch out for Chris Christie, who's going to be headhunting, who's a really talented pugilist, and I believe could could hurt both of them, um, potentially help himself, and has been on the rise. A little in New Hampshire, there was a poll yesterday, maybe a little bit of an outlier, but had Trump down at 34 in New Hampshire and Christie in second at 14. And DeSantis was in fourth, I believe, like something like nine. But what do you uh, make of where Christie is? What will you expect of him tomorrow night? What I expect of Chris Christie is for him to come into this race with the intention of destroying or damaging Donald Trump, but ending up taking everyone else out because he can't help himself, which seems to be the role that Chris Christie has been ordained to play in our endless Trump saga. Chris Christie is 
in some circumstances, a good debater, but he has no discipline. He cannot execute a plan. He sees a target or he hears something that irritates him or he notices the opportunity for a quip or a self-aggrandizing moment and he takes it. And I fully expect him to do so tomorrow. That's what I expect from Chris Christie. He's not going to win the nomination. His unfavorables are through the roof. Fine, he might be doing slightly better in New Hampshire, although what is slightly better? Is it 11%? But he's not going to win in Iowa or South Carolina or on Super Tuesday. He's in there to play a role, and I have no confidence whatsoever that he can do it. Your question was, at least part of it, was can he hurt DeSantis? Of course he can. Of course he can hurt DeSantis. Can he hurt Vivek Ramaswamy? Of course he can. That's the danger of having someone who has jumped in to be a wrecking ball but doesn't particularly care in which direction he rolls. I wish Chris Christie were not in this race for that reason. The question you asked, and I understand why you asked it the way you did, because this is unfortunately how a lot of this works. Pugilism is a good word. Once again, highlights, along with the debate over the listless vessels comment and our focus on Vivek Ramaswamy's ridiculous answers on 9-11, that the interest thus far in this primary has not at any point been about policy. We aren't talking about policy. That's one of the reasons why what DeSantis said, and I hope others will say, is important. Because a lot of people, and this is certainly true of the general electorate, care about policy. They don't want to relitigate the 2020 election. They don't want to describe Trump in fawning or obsequious ways. They don't want to talk about 9-11. They don't care about the internal dynamics of the race in New Hampshire and whether or not Chris Christie will do this or that. They want to talk about the things that they care about, which overwhelmingly are the economy, crime, and immigration, all of which help the Republican Party, and abortion, which does not. That's what they want to talk about. And yet the Republican Party just cannot get out of its own way. So once again, we're sitting here. This isn't a criticism of us or the question, but it is a criticism of the Republican Party. Once again, we are sitting here talking about internal dynamics, the Trump cult of personality, and whether or not this candidate who isn't going to win the nomination thinks that there was a federal agent or a police officer on a plane that hit the Twin Towers 22 years ago. I I think if nothing else sums up the state of our politics, it's that. (laughs) So, Dominic, uh, DeSantis will be a target. He'll be a target of Christie. He'll probably be a target of others. This is one of the advantages to Trump. There might be some downsides, but one of the advantages of skipping the, the debate is it makes DeSantis the the target. Everyone just has an incentive to take him down a peg. What would you expect from the Florida governor tomorrow night? Um, 
Well, first of all, we gotta I gotta own up to something because in what was I believe the most complicated exit question in the history of this podcast, uh, Rich, <laughs> you posed as one of seven items uh, the possibility of uh, Vivek Ramaswamy hitting double digits in the polls, and I said it wouldn't happen, and it has happened. So um, I wanted to make sure that's good. Good accountability. I think everyone else did. It might have been all. all it might have been the same lineup. I know I was a double-digit guy. I'm pretty sure Noah was. I don't know where – I forget where Charlie yeah, was. Yeah, so wanted to get out in front of that. But, um, yeah, I think uh, 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 DeSantis um, – it, it, it's going to be really hard to figure out what's going to happen, especially as it relates to Iowa, because Iowa last time, of course, did not vote for Donald Trump. Um, Donald Trump is not – doesn't seem to be trying too hard to win Iowa. He seems to be kind of uh, banking on his his national popularity. He's, of course, not participating in the debate. And so uh, it will be interesting to see if these candidates who have been focused more on Iowa, DeSantis being one of them, um, are actually able to uh, get that, that more local appeal uh, into something meaningful uh, on, on, on caucus day. Um, one of the things that's interesting about these caucuses always is the fact that a very small percentage of the electorate participates in them. Um, one of the things, uh, and, and, and so it, it can lead to these uh, sort of unrepresentative um, um, samples of, of people coming in and, 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 and making a difference in, on, on, on uh, caucus day. And, uh, you know, uh, Americans for Prosperity is one group that's trying to increase turnout among people who they think will support non-Trump candidates. Um, and in doing so, they hope to be able to um, get people who wouldn't have participated otherwise who might go show up and, and make a difference in Iowa. And again, you can do this really without having to move that many people because these these uh, the participation is normally uh, so low. So um, that's if, if a strategy like that works from AFP or from other groups that are trying to do that, and I'm sure the candidates' campaigns are trying to do that as well, if that kind of thing works, it could uh, lead to better performance from DeSantis or from Mike Pence or from these other candidates who, you know, the fundamentals would say are more suited to the electorate of Republicans in Iowa. So, no, back on the, the debate, I think DeSantis will be highly prepared and very cogent. I think I'll have an answer to everything. The question is, will anything he, he says, will it have enough um, color to it? Will he be able to match, you know, Christie and Vivek just as um, a sheer talented communicators, but someone that you would think, and, you know, it's hard to gain this out totally in advance, right? Because there's just randomness. This one question could bounce this way and you never know how things are going to go. But it seemed like Tim Scott would have um, some running room here. No one really has an incentive uh, to question him. This is uh, um, uh, to go after him, to headhunt him. And um, he it's he's a, a talented communicator in his own right, in his own way. And um, he, he might, might have some running room. Absolutely. I mean, just based on what we're seeing in the polls, he's very well liked. Um, Republicans actually, Republican primary voters actually kind of like this field of candidates. They don't necessarily want to vote for them, but their favorability ratings, with the exception of Chris Christie and, and uh, Mike Pence, um, for two very different reasons, varying degrees of legitimacy, uh, they're all pretty well liked. And I w can anticipate 
Um, Vivek having a moment, a dramatic moment, one of those sound bites that translates. Uh, I can see that from Tim Scott. I can see Ron DeSantis not having very much dramatic flair, but having command of the stage because he is, by all accounts, really well-versed in policy and encyclopedic uh, when it comes to uh, public affairs and his ability to summon data uh, in kind of a Reagan, Reagan-esque way. Um, I also don't anticipate that any of it will matter, um, in part because what really will matter and what the press will be pushing and what they everybody wants to see is how folks respond to Donald Trump. And it's hard to evaluate that because I no longer think like a Republican. I don't quite grasp how Republicans view the landscape. Go back to that Kirsten Solstice Anderson um, focus group today. Quinnipiac University uh, demonstrated that missing the debate is a big mistake for Donald Trump. Vast majorities say it's really important to show up. Uh, only 15% of Republican primary voters told Quinnipiac pollsters that it was either, either unimportant or not very important to show up for the debate if you don't qualify. So that would seem to be an avenue to attack Donald Trump in. You go back to that Chris, Kirsten Solis Anderson um, focus group, and voters don't evaluate Donald Trump like they would a candidate. Once they find out that it's Donald Trump skipping the debate, oh, that's fine. That's okay. He can do that. He gets to do whatever because he's Donald Trump. They're not looking at him as they would a, a, a candidate for office, much less anybody else in their life, an employee, a service provider, a family member. They don't evaluate him that way. They evaluate him on, their, on his own terms. And he's in the poll position. He has to be attacked in absentia. And the incentive on the part of Republicans, which is evident in that Axiom memo that, that drove me nuts, it was you know leaked publicly for Ron DeSantis to use as he will, is to, uh, is to attack Chris Christie in defense of Donald Trump in absentia because he's not here. He can't defend himself. That might win you a news cycle among Republicans, but it will lose you the nomination. And that is everybody's incentive. Everybody's incentive is to run, run blocking tackle for the guy because that's what Republican voters want to see. They don't want a contest. They say they do. But all the evidence suggests they don't. Charlie Cook, let's go to a series of exit questions. Chris Christie will say this or something very like it in the debate directed at Ron DeSantis. That's why we can't have Donald Trump and why you're a coward, Governor, for not taking him on. The governor in question is DeSantis. Yes. Yeah, I think he'll say something like that. Dominic? Uh, yeah, I think he will. Although I, I do hope, because uh, um, I, I do hope he will take on Vivek on this ridiculous 9-11 just asking questions thing, because if there's one guy who's qualified to do that on that stage, it's Chris Christie. Mm-hmm. Noah? You know what? That It's a pretty interesting question, because you can attack Donald Trump in the form of Vivek. <laughs> you can attack Donald Trump for all his positions, everything that he believes, everything he, his behavior, his comportment, his irresponsibility in the vessel of Vivek Ramaswamy. So it'd be very interesting to see if, if that's how you get around this whole Trump problem by using him as a punching bag. But yes, I can absolutely see that happening. And, and much more combat now. Some pretty, some pretty rough elbows being thrown around if that's the dynamic that emerges tomorrow night. So he will definitely say something like that. I have uh, no doubt. Charlie, Ron DeSantis will say which of these terms more often on the debate stage in Milwaukee, false media narrative or Fauciism? 
they'll be behind the word so, which he uses as a connecting word between all of his sentences and needs to stop. I think he will say false media narrative. Dominic. Yeah, I'm going to go with false media narrative. Noah. I think we'll go with that too, false media narrative, just because I don't, I don't remember Fauciism being an ism. Has he said that a lot? I said it a lot, yeah. Uh, it'll yeah. definitely be false media narrative, though. Charlie Vivek will say this or something like it on the debate stage. I realize maybe I could have said that better. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, he's going to see the lights in his eyes and feel as if any concession is a sign of weakness and defend himself. Dominic. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I don't think he has any any sense of that, and I think he thinks he's, I think he thinks he's playing into some of the uh, media's whipped up um, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. energy by uh, playing into some of this stuff. Noah, he won't say that. He might say, "I'm not saying," which is a pet peeve of mine because it's we know you're not saying that. You didn't say it, but. Yes, he'll probably, if that's the closest he'll get if he gets anywhere near it. Yeah, he, he, he can't back down in any form. His, his whole campaign is like created in a lab to, to learn certain lessons about how to appeal to a mega audience. And like top of that list is like never back down or apologize or notably backtrack. You maybe can kind of, kind of do it covertly or uh, subtly, but you can't admit any form of error. So no, he won't say that. Charlie, maybe an, easy, an even easier one here. Asa Hutchison at some point will say, hey, I'm over here. Hey, guys, 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 hey, I'm still here. Sorry, who? Asa Hutchison, have you heard of him? I'm teasing, I'm teasing. <laughs> I the former governor of Arkansas. No, I mean, I think Asa Hutchinson will behave as if he's the front runner. I think that's all you can do when you're in that position. The problem is there is no rationale for an Asa Hutchinson candidacy, and he's at some point going to realize that. Dominic. Yeah, he'll he'll do that. So will a handful of other people because there's way too many people on this stage, and most of them are not going to get to talk very much because everyone, you know, the moderators know that they're not actually going to win the nomination, so there's no sense in talking to them. But they're up there, so you got to... You got to do something, and yeah, they'll they'll complain that it's unfair or that they didn't get enough time. But uh, as Charlie said, there's there's no reason for some of these people to be running. Noah, yeah, he'll complain about the lack of time that he gets. So will Doug Burgum. But I, you know, it's not it's not always based on polling. Like I can't anticipate Mike Pence mm -hmm. getting a lot of mic time. Yeah. Totally not respective to his. Yeah, you know what? Sure. We we barely someone mentioned Mike Pence, right? But we barely talked about him. Yeah. So, final exit question to you, Charlie. Who are you most confident will have a standout performance in Milwaukee to help him or herself? You know, now that say use that pronoun, we haven't mentioned Nikki Haley either in the polls a little bit after the Milwaukee debate. Tim Scott, Dominic, uh, Giannis. No, yeah, Tim Scott. <laughs> Noah. Tim Scott and Vivek, I say, unfortunately. Chris Christie and Doug Burgum. With that. Wait, why Doug Burgum? Because I, um, I think he's an appealing guy. 
I was really taken with his performance at the Lincoln Dinner in Des Moines. He's kind of a, a, a winsome personality. No one knows anything about him. You know, he's going to say about three things, but they'll be they'll be good things. And you know, he'll he'll go from one to two or something like that. But uh, T- Tim Scott's not a bad answer either. So with that, Charlie, let's hear from our first sponsor this episode, Ball and Branch Sheets. You know, I learned, despite having used these sheets for two, three, maybe four years now, that it's pronounced Ball and Branch, and that I've been saying it wrong. I sleep on Ball and Branch sheets every night. How much better could I do as a pitch man? I know how good they are, like millions of Americans and four U.S. presidents... I get a better night's sleep because I sleep on Bowl and Branch sheets. They're best-selling signature sheets, to be specific, which are buttery, breathable, and they get softer with every single wash. Those sheets are made free from toxins with the finest 100% traceable organic cotton. They use long staple threads. They're slow-spun for an unmatched softness, and they feel unbelievably soft for years to come, which I know because despite not knowing that it was bowl and branch, I have been sleeping on them for years. Once you experience the quality of bowl and branch like me, you will never sleep on anything else. And even better is that you can, for a limited time, only get 15% off your first set of sheets at bowlandbranch.com with our promo code, which is editors. That website is thus B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H dot com forward slash editors. With that, you'll get 15% off. You get free shipping, free returns, and a 30-night worry-free guarantee. If you go to ballandbranch.com, promo code is editors. Exclusions apply. See site for details. So, Dominic, let's talk about China. There's been a lot of talk about the China model, of course. A lot of people very impressed with it. Tom Friedman, the New York Times columnist, of course, has written over the years about the great advantages of doing things the way the Chinese do, wrote a column several years ago, whatever you do, don't bet against the Chinese. And it seems as though the economy over there is suffering significant turbulence. It's a little difficult to tell exactly what's going on, obviously, because it's not an open society and the very positive economic numbers have been faked for a very long time. Now it turns out that the Chinese just can't produce basic numbers anymore for some for some reason or other, but whatever go- is going on is not good. I'm sure Tom Friedman right now is saying that the next six months are crucial for the Chinese economy. Um, but <laughs> his, uh, you know, he's not the only one that, that has been on this. And We've heard this from lots of different politicians on both sides of the aisle, by the way, um, that the Chinese economic model, you know, uh, the, the, it's usually phrased as something along, you know, hey, say what you will about their, about their, you know, dictatorship, their human rights abuses, all the rest of that stuff. They do get results on the economy. And now we're seeing as all of the freer economies of the West are recovering post-pandemic, uh, China's economy is tanking. And Part of it is because of those draconian COVID restrictions that they had that they just lifted in the end of last year, by the way. So, um, yeah, it's astonishing. It is just crazy. They were still locking people in their homes at the end of last year. And so, 
um, the 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 length of time and the severity of their lockdowns were far greater than anything that anyone else in the world experienced, but certainly anybody in the Western world experienced. And, uh, you know, we had plenty of problems and Europe had plenty of plenty of problems of, you know, shutting down and then reopening their economies from their uh, from from their covid restrictions. Well, China's having that times 10 and uh, and they're having it in a country with over a billion people. And uh, it is it is causing uh, massive problems in their market. Now, they also had a, a pre-existing problems by over relying on the real estate sector and on infrastructure construction in order to build, uh, in order to uh, boost their their GDP. Because uh, despite what we hear about the greatness of Chinese manufacturing, the Chinese export boom ended about uh, you know five to ten years ago, and so um, we have had. Uh, they, is, is that Dominic just because it, it reached a, its natural level and and peaked, or because uh, countries began to close off markets or combination? Um, uh, combination a little bit, but I mean, it, it was mostly because it sort of reached its its natural level. They kind of they kind of picked all the low hanging fruit that they had, mm-hmm. um, and 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 didn't have anything left, and they've been unable to kind of advance to the next stage of of economic development. And so, uh, then their demographic profile makes that nearly impossible because they can no longer count on population growth to help their economic growth, and um, uh, and that's a consequence of the one child policy, which. Uh, will probably go down as the worst central planning failure in the history of the world. Uh, this was this was the idea that you know we need to restrict our population in order to grow. We need to, and it led to you know countless human rights abuses. Uh, led to China being the abortion capital of the world. Um, this huge imbalance between men and women, uh, because if you're only going to have uh, one child in that society, you'd prefer it to be a boy. And so there are millions more men than women now. And uh, we have uh, China has a youth unemployment rate over 20%, and a lot of those people can't get married either. And so uh, that's a that's a recipe for disaster for any country, but especially for a country uh, that depends on um, authoritarian methods of control. And so uh, you know uh, you combine that with their biggest property developers going bust. Uh, you look at the the finance sector is not doing well. All of their local governments are in massive amounts of debt. Uh, you know. Independent estimates are saying that's somewhere over 65% of Chinese GDP um, is the equivalent amount of debt that local governments have, and that doesn't even get to the the, the national government. Um, and all of that stuff's going to have to be worked out within the communist parties. So the blame game there is going to be pretty pretty terrible. Um, it's it's not looking good for China, and um, this is a good reminder to the West that uh, you know this 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 kind of uh, supposed alternate model for development is really not an alternate model, uh, and it's forcing China to return to its more command and control past, and you know we're get, they're getting the results that we would expect from that. Yeah, no, I'm obviously no economic maven. Um, uh, actually, when I was away last week, I read half of a Wall Street Journal article about the yield curve, and I, I still I still don't know what it is. But my my take on the Chinese economy always was if we could screw up our housing market and financial markets so badly in 2008, when we have you know an almost totally uh, open, upfront, transparent system, what? Terrible things must be lurking under the rocks oh, there in and this was in China. A, this was a huge source of gloating for the CCP in 2008 because they said, look, there it is. That proves it. Western capitalism doesn't work. Uh, it's a disaster. 
and uh, see, you know, we we're, we're the only game in town, and that was a huge propaganda win for them. And uh, and now they're having the exact opposite happening uh, because all of the Western economies are doing well coming out of are doing well coming out of COVID, and they are not. No. Yeah, so it's I don't want to build too much on what Dominic said. Those are the nuts and bolts of it. Um, there's an ideolo- ideological aspect to this that he touched on and deserves to be highlighted a little bit more. In 1980, Deng Xiaoping declared that it was glorious to get rich. And the CCP has utterly repudiated that um, that pivot. In 2021, CCP Presidium declared that common prosperity is the goal. Toward that end, the state is obliged to regulate excessively high incomes, encourage high-income people and enterprises to return more to society. And that sounds like boilerplate progressivism. But it was paired with the re-Sovietization of the economy, the return of, um, as Dominic said, a command and control structure, and also a crackdown on entrepreneurs, the imprisonment of Jack Ma, um, the harassment of firms like Tennyson's, and Metuyan, and the encouragement of firms to abandon their fiduciary responsibility in exchange for socialist solidarity. Uh, and it was also manifested in this kind of irrational and paranoid attack on foreign companies and foreign investment, you know, these cultural priorities that were imposed on firms like Disney to include the, the nine dash line in its cultural products and to, for Mercedes to apologize for quoting the Dalai Lama and making Marriott hotel chain fire an employee for liking a social media post that offended Chinese nationalists. All these are signs of weaknesses and paranoia, not strength. They've combined into this attack on foreign investment. And by the way, our, the imports, our imports from China are declining rapidly, as they are in a lot of the industrialized world. It's an attack on the independent independence provided by prosperity and the stabilizing but demanding middle class that China has been developing and has since become a little leery of. As Dominic said, the economy has long been buttressed by uh, this housing market and construction, which at times accounted for more than a quarter of China's GDP growth, and they came to rely on a really substantial GDP growth to buttress uh, all the inefficiencies associated with its quasi-socialist system. And so now you have these ghost cities, it's like archipelagos, Soviet-style showpiece cities that pepper the Siberian landscape with no people. Mm-hmm. Promenades that go nowhere with no promenaders, as uh, Jane Jacobs said. Uh, and it is all political. I mean, all of these choices, this is, this is obviously the abandonment of market economics, but it is a, is a choice on the part of the CCP to sacrifice growth, sacrifice dynam- dynamism, sacrifice prosperity for political control. And that's a profound uh, hindrance on the ability of China to realize the Chinese century that so many economists were predicting in the last decade. Um, it's the allure of, of Marxism, which is kind of validating for those of us who have been saying for a very long time that communism and socialism are inefficient systems. And just because they've, you know, they've had this boom, which is all attributable to the, uh, to the, uh, uh, you know, taking into these market mechanisms and, and warming to market mechanisms and abandoning them, has had all these consequences. So it's kind of validating for those of us who think that the market remains the uh, the most optimal and efficient uh, system of economic Nice, uh, Nice Jane Jacobs quote, by the way. Do you like her book? Uh, Death and Life? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. 
No, yeah. it's a, the that, first be, chapter is captivating. Kind of that be uh, kind of goes top, on. Yeah, it gets a little muddy as you read into it. Would that would that be, would that be uh, in the top ten of your conservative books? Even well, it's hardly she, a conservative book, <laughs> even though she's not a conservative. <laughs> it wasn't at the time. It has become something of a conservative ethos because it's it's anti technocratic. It was an attack on city mm-hmm. planning, planning, yeah. Corbusier's idea of the uh, of this the idealized city and and the powers. Our powers of the capacity to uh, subordinate the organic to the planned. Right. And yes, so in that sense, it's a conservative book. It wasn't at the time, though. So, Charlie, we've, um, we, we've done a, a lot to mess up this country, and there are lots of things we can do better. But here we are after 2008, after COVID lockdowns, after inflation, all the rest of it, and we, we still are in the most enviable position in the world. That's exactly what I was going to say. I was going to say that I don't have a great deal to add to what Dominic and Noah have said about the substance of China's problems, but that we ought to remember this, because every few years, going back decades, someone comes along and says, look at that country over there. They don't have the system that we have. They don't have classical liberal constitutional rules or free and fair elections or capitalism or individual rights and they're eating our lunch and if we want to improve our lot in the future and keep up with them then we need to get rid of our system which is outdated it's a relic of 18th century whiggism and it's never true it's never true it wasn't true and americans and British intellectuals were saying it about the Soviet Union or about Nazi Germany. It wasn't true when they were saying it about China. It wasn't even true when they were saying it about Japan, which is not to be mentioned in the same breath in its modern iteration as those countries, but nevertheless was supposed to take over from the United States as the world's greatest economy and economic system in the late 1980s and early 1990s. It doesn't happen now that isn't to say that we can't as a nation commit suicide of course we can eventually nations all commit suicide but it would be nice if for once the institutional voices in the united states could recognize that actually we have something pretty good here that is worth conserving and that newfangled systems that ignore all that we have learned bit by bit in the 14th and 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th century never work out. They don't work out because they're built on sand and lies. So yes, exactly what I was going to say is, of course we have problems. Goodness knows I spend a lot of time complaining. But I would rather be here because the United States is built economically and politically upon a set of eternal verities that cannot be wished away by two-bit apparatchiks in Moscow or Beijing. So, Dominic, I ask a question to you. We will look at our panic or alarm or whatever your term you want to use for it over the rise of China and the same way we look back now to our alarm over the economic rise of Japan in the 80s, just when it was about to experience a lost decade, yes or no? Uh, Yes, I think it will be like that, except it will have the added awfulness of uh, China being a genocidal communist regime instead of uh, Japanese being a a liberal democracy. Noah? 
Yeah, that and yes, there's also the risk of um, a sort of existential crisis occurring within Chinese mm-hmm. leadership. If they perceive themselves to have a narrow window of opportunity to secure the geopolitical gains that they that they were otherwise convinced would just accrue to them naturally as a result of their inevitable economic rise, that could be a problem. Charlie. That's a huge risk. It obviously does not follow that because a country is not going to organically supplant the United States or Britain or whatever, that it will not be aggressive, as we have learned many, many times. In fact, often one leads to another. So no amount of cold water being poured on the Chinese system should lead people to believe that it will not become aggressive, even successfully. One really easy way for the Chinese to boost their GDP, which, you know, not to you know, dive into Nazi analogies good, here is to devote itself almost exclusively to arms manufacturing. Mm-hmm. Really I'm, easy way to boost your GDP. That's That was basically the, the German economy in the 1930s. That plus amphetamines. <laughs> that too. Yeah, so yeah. drug exports. So I'm basically gonna, a giant North Korea. I'm going to say no. I think it's a little too optimistic to, to go there quite yet. And then the big difference, as you guys have just hit on, is Japan was an ally. Um, and China is not. And we're represents a threat in all sorts of other ways, even if its economic model is sputtering. With that, let's hear from our second sponsor of this episode, Made in Cook, where we have Made in Frying Pans right here in the Lowry Kitchen, and they are completely awesome. Made in was created by a 100-year-old family business specializing in high-end restaurant supply. It works with celebrated chefs and expert artisans to craft elegant, professional-quality cookware for restaurant and home kitchens alike. Your best meals are ahead of you with artisan-made restaurant-quality cookware. Made in's award-winning non-stick cookware has a double layer of professional-grade non-stick coating. Its stainless clad is nearly indestructible and has unparalleled heat retention, making for even heat distribution. We found all this to be emphatically true. Our made-in pans are great to handle. They cook evenly, and very, very importantly, they are easy to clean. I say this as the guy who can spend an hour standing at the sink washing dishes at night. So Made in Cookware gets our highest recommendation, especially my wife's recommendation. And right now, editors, listeners can get 10% off full-priced items on orders of $100 or more from Made in. For full details, visit madeincookware.com slash editors. That's madeincookware.com slash editors. Please check it out. So Noah, finally, Joe Biden made it to... Maui. This whole thing has been just at, at the level, I mean, obviously, it's a horrific tragedy on the ground there, but the, the level of his handling of it has just been bizarre. Jim Garrity posted about this the other day. He got a shouted question at, at some point, you know, what, 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 do you have a message for the, the people of Maui or, or something like that? He's like, no comment, <laughs> which is just mind boggling. Then he gets there and he just, he can't stop, you know, I guess because he's, he fashions himself this great commiserator, he, he can't stop himself from, from making tragedies about him or about things he's experienced, uh, losses he's experienced in his life. He, this was one of the complaints of the uh, poor um, family members of the 
service members killed at that that gate in Afghanistan was that that he was he was talking about Bo as if he died in combat, which he didn't. And then he's out there in Maui talking about basically a, a kitchen fire he he experienced, and uh, in this mumbly you know, raspy voice. So it's just yet another performance. If this were any other president, you know the way he's handled this would be. A scandal that he wasn't out there sooner, that he hasn't been mo- more coherent, but everyone's either gotten used to it or the, the media um, wants to cover up for him or both. Well, it is a scandal. Uh, everything that we're hearing about how this happened and how the functionaries who occupy sinecures in a one-party state behaved suggests quite a lot of incompetence contributed to a profoundly deadly disaster. We don't know the scale of, of the devastation yet. But what we know is intolerable. Um, I understand, perhaps, why the White House was reluctant to dispatch Joe Biden, particularly when his first instinct, when you get a softball question like that, is not to say, well, our hearts go out or whatever, but no comment. That just is so maladroit, displays such a lack of political muscle memory mm-hmm. that he's not the same person. Mm-hmm. that he was in 2020. And yes, he he retreats into his own personal circumstances to find, to summon some of the the empathy that he's supposedly known for. Um, but then he also says things like, trees survive for a reason. Which is a comment that if any other Republican politician, or politician generally had made, it would be the subject of mockery and humor. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's, there's a general understanding, an unspoken understanding, that... We got to keep Grandpa safe. Yeah, remember uh, what was the Mitt Romney thing? The trees are the right height. Trees are the right height. <laughs> yes, which they are. They are fabulous height in those trees in Michigan. Um, but it's the sort of thing, and and then the press bent over backwards to contrive and fabricate uh, narratives to make fun of Mitt Romney over. But here's one that's just handed to you on a silver platter, and you can't take advantage of it. This is a con- this is a digression, but this is a frustration that I've had since the beginning of the Biden administration, that comedy writers are doing everything they possibly can to avoid all the fodder that is just on the Mm -hmm. table for them on a day-to-day basis, just between Joe Biden and his his vice president, Kamala Harris. You you have your day made, and yet you're just working overtime to try to avoid the obvious jokes that are right in front of you. But it's not to say that these jokes aren't being made. It's not to say that people aren't noticing. People notice this sort of thing, and they Mm -hmm. are forming their opinions organically and without having their hand held and guided to the proper conclusions by media. And those are much harder to to dispel once they calcify into something that, you know, the forms a real opinion about how Joe Biden is behaving. Charlie? I think he should have stuck with no comment. He was much better off with no comment. Sure, it sounded a little bit callous, but it's neutral. Instead... He went out and did what he seems constitutionally incapable of avoiding, which is to talk about himself. I don't know why he does this. I don't know whether his canon of anecdotes is so narrow in his dotage that they are the only things he can reach for when trying to draw an analogy. I yeah, don't I mean, know. It's just, it just speaks, Charlie, right? To just, it's so profoundly self-centered. It's, it's yeah. the way the center, a senator, a stereotypical senator, thinks about the world. Yeah. Um, I don't know if he really believes he's empathetic or 
if he's a narcissist who can't conceive of the world outside of a frame that involves him and his life. But whatever it is, this is embarrassing. And it's counterproductive. And he would have been better off saying nothing. Because this infuriates people. He can't stop it. And I think what Noah mentioned about the press is part of the problem here. I said last time that we don't need presidents to go out and make visits to sites of tragedy and bereavement. And I stand by that. I wish we had a different political system. But if you're going to go, you cannot fail to distinguish between your ceremonial role, the role of your office, and yourself. There's a big difference between what is expected of someone who is acting as a master of ceremonies and somebody who is at, say, a campaign rally or is the subject of an interview. And we haven't had a president who is capable of observing that distinction for quite a long time. Donald Trump couldn't do it. Barack Obama could not do it either. The last person who could do it, I think, was George W. Bush, and he was crucified unfairly over Katrina, which renders all of the incentives and coverage here somewhat perverse. But this is a particularly Joe Biden-ish tick. It's It's a bingo game that he's playing, where he goes to a site where he knows that people are grieving, and he picks from the list of stories about his own family or own life Uh, that he has and then people complain about it and then the press because it doesn't want to criticize him says nothing and so he does it again and there's apparently nobody around him who is able to take him aside and say joe please stop doing this you are upsetting people you are infuriating them you are making it worse now in this case it is probably not the worst thing that has ever happened but in the case of afghanistan it really was those parents who had just lost their children did not think that this was cute, did not wave it away as an eccentricity or a foible or as the product of old age. That really hurt them. And I, I, I think it is time, if the press can't do it, it's time for Jill Biden, if she's capable of it, to say, Joe, don't, just don't do this anymore. So, Dominic, you're a statistical-minded guy. How do you think about the role of climate change in any given extreme weather event. It's obviously a major theme in the coverage and in the the advocacy among climate activists. Maui, you know, the fire was supposedly um, made made worse by climate change. This um, hurricane we saw in the southwestern United States hitting Los Angeles, inundating the parking lot of Dodger Stadium. It's supposedly a bizarre event caused by climate change when actually there, there have been many such hurricanes in, in the past, just they uh, obviously are relatively rare and don't get a lot of notice. But how should we think about that aspect of this? Uh, we should treat it like the ridiculousness that it is. I think um, the, I mean, this is this is not some weirdo right-wing thing. Uh, if you, I mean, the IPCC says that wildfires are not greatly affected by climate change. Of all of the, basically, of all of the extreme weather events that they say are affected by climate change, wildfires ranks near the bottom. So this is not, um, you know, they, they've really found no major uh, difference. Um, 
uh, due to due to climate change on wildfires. Um, the problem that we have here in Hawaii is a problem of environmentalism in a way, but not of climate change. It's a problem of invasive species. Um, there's a species of grass that uh, is not native to the island that burns very easily, and they were having a difficult time controlling it. Um, and it's also a problem of uh, of uh, electric utilities uh, managing and and maintaining their equipment. And this is what we see in in California as well. A lot of wildfires there. Again, they are not started by an angry Mother Earth. They are started by people there being irresponsible with fire, um, whether that's an electric utility or campers or uh, any number of of other people who might uh, be able to to spark something like that. And um, California, meanwhile, New York Times reported yesterday, um, much of California is, is is not under drought conditions for the first time in in three years. Um, so if you if we feel like we have heard a little bit less about wildfires in California, that's part of the reason for that as well. Um, so uh, again, uh, it, the, the the climate change narrative here really is is ridiculous. It is completely forced and. Uh, I think that's the biggest way of, you know, we, we talk about, you know, if this, if this was, if this happened under a Republican president, what would the press do? That's the single biggest thing. They would be sitting here blaming the Republican president for the wildfire's existence because uh, his or her political party does not support uh, the Green New Deal or whatever. And, um, uh, and we would see the, the single party nature of Hawaii that Noah mentioned earlier being played in exactly the opposite way. Uh, it would be said, oh, uh, you know, you don't care about the victims of this because they all vote for Democrats and they're out on this island, uh, island state, uh, you know, 2000 miles away. And, oh, these heartless Republicans, you would have countless think pieces about how uh, about how, uh, you know, Republicans uh, climate denialism led to this led to this fire. Um, and, and, and none of it would be true. And it wouldn't change the uh, now over 100 people who have died in what is the deadliest wildfire in over a hundred years in the United States, and so um, it, it is completely, uh, it's completely ridiculous. It, it, it is, it is not. Uh, wildfires are not things that just magically happen. Uh, we have ways to control them. We have uh, professionals that devote their careers to doing that, and uh, we need to stop pretending that uh, this that there's some angry spirit out there that's causing these problems, and instead actually deal with the the, the causes that we know how to handle. Noah, next question to you. What is your confidence level now that Joe Biden will indeed be the Democratic nominee from 0% to 0%? No, it's going to be Kamala Harris or Gavin or someone else. 100%. It's inevitably Biden. Um, well, this is always, the caveat has always been barring a catastrophic health event, um, which everyone there there can be no massaging and there can be no getting around. It's sort of like a, a, a constitutional question at that point. Then barring that, with that caveat outstanding, I would say it's still 75, 80% chance Joe Biden is the nominee. If they have to prop him up on his horse like El Cid, he will be the Democratic nominee because the alternative is chaos within the party. And they won't, they simply won't accept that as much as they'd love to have some alternative you go to war with the army you got. Charlie? Why would they replace him? He's Dark Brandon, slayer of Republicans, <laughs> bringer of light and hope and truth. I agree with Noah. I think it's going to be very difficult for them, both because they've got a weak bench, but also because they will be worried about starting a civil war while it looks as if Donald Trump's going to be the Republican nominee. 
and the polls, albeit polls I think are wrong, show them tied. Dominic. Uh, yeah, making Noah's same caveat, you know, barring some really bad health event, and it would have to be. But I, I think that should be, I think that technically that should be factored in. Okay. You should factor it into your calculation. Well, uh, then 99% then, with the 1% being the uh, the chance of no, a no, no. So, really bad health event. All right. All right. So so you're even, so you're like, there's a 1% chance there's a health event, and other, other, otherwise he's the nominee. Yes. Yes, and it would have to be something yes. really bad because we have to remember John Fetterman is in the United States Senate. Yeah, so I, I'm um, much lower because I think the chances of the health event are higher. So I'm like 70%, but that's all, all something terrible happening, which I don't want to happen, obviously. But it's not, I, I don't believe in any just clever political switcheroo that's going to be done yeah, not uh, i think they're they're uh, yeah they're committed to, to biden because you know for the reasons that have been um discussed here but i just he's not looking good and it's not uh it's not going to get any better with that let me make a quick nr announcement the print magazine which has been a fortnightly published twice a month since roughly 1958, there was a, a period there from 55 to 58 where National Review was a weekly. This is why we've had an anachronistic feature in the magazine, low those many decades, called The Week, because we were briefly a weekly, is going monthly. So this was actually something first suggested by a design firm we've been working with. We've been working on this redesign for about a year or so. They took some of us aside at some point and said, you know what, this thing is going to look and feel like a monthly, why don't you make it a monthly? This is kind of change that's been discussed on and off for, for years at NR, and we finally decided to make the leap here, and this is not like your Newsweekly or some other publication that just gets thinner and thinner, and then it gets less frequent, and then poof, it disappears. This is gonna be a bigger magazine with more pages. The quality of the pages and the cover gonna be higher as part of this modern, sleek, Redesigns going to have a number of new features in it. So everyone who's touched and felt and picked up a prototype of this thing has had a real wow reaction. So we were hoping and expecting that our subscribers will have the same reaction as well. So look at that. Look for that coming to a mailbox near you if you're a print subscriber in October. And we should add, too, that the week will actually be weekly. And it will. And this is, uh, yeah, a crazy, mind-bending innovation. We are going to publish uh, a weekly digital edition of the week for people who sign up for that via email. So with that, let's hit a few other things before we go. Noah, you are on the Jersey Shore. Yeah, I took my children to the shore, which is about an hour away from us. It's sort of a birthright. It's not something I really look forward to, just because it's crowded, it's hot. You know, I've been, I've done it all my life, but it is why we pay property taxes here. So I went and very much enjoyed it. It was actually, um, it, it's it's such an essential feature of living life in this state. And I can hear Charlie say, "Oh, it's a beach." Whatever. We have beaches. <laughs> we go there every year. But seasonality creates scarcity, and scarcity is value. So there is value to doing this mm -hmm. precisely once every year. <laughs> Dominic, speaking of things that you should do once a year, if that, you went rock climbing with your girlfriend. 
I did. We went rock climbing. It was fun. Um, we're probably going to do it more often because she was pretty good at it and kind of showed me up a little bit. But uh, no, it was it was a good time, and uh, I am sore today. But it is a, it is a good workout, especially uh, for upper body, and uh, it is a great feeling when you get to the top of the wall and tap that uh, top uh, t- tap the top of the so, wall. So feels, this feels so good. this was an in, so this was an inside facility yeah with, indoor with like indoor little, gym here yeah little plus plastic or rubber protrusions whatever they are mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that you use for grips you should you should try to go outside and do the real thing dominic oh yeah uh, yeah i don't know about that <laughs> charlie your kids are good at video games yes well if you're going to chastise dominic for rock climbing indoors how about playing soccer on a nintendo switch (laughs) seems the worst of all options my children have been asking for a while for a soccer game and there was a ridiculous sale that had fifa 23 at i think seven dollars so i picked it up and was roundly beaten by both of them not the first time i reassured them it's okay daddy's been playing this for 30 years but by the fifth or sixth game, my seven-year-old could beat me even when I was trying my hardest. And by the tenth game, my five-year-old was beating me. So this was obviously a terrible decision. Or, more likely, something ineffable has changed about the games over time. They used to be different, but now they're perhaps coded to be particularly uh, appealing to seven-year-olds. So when I was away and not half reading Wall Street Journal articles on the yield curve... I was reading a book called Road to Nowhere by a sports writer named Chris Donnelly. I like to read uh, baseball books when I'm away. And this one is about baseball in New York in the early 1990s, which was generally completely horrible. I read half of this book because I'm not not interested in the Mets portions, but I love this period of, of Yankees baseball where they went from being totally abysmal to being really kind of interesting and, and fun. And in 1994, the strike shortened year, they, they had the best record in baseball. They made a shift from focusing on aging sluggers to focusing on on-base uh, percentage. And in 96, you know, they were a great offensive team and actually had, I think, the, at least at one point, before they acquired Daryl Strawberry and Cecil Fielder halfway through the year, had the third lowest number of home runs in the American League. So with that, it's time for our editor's picks. It's going to be a special editor's picks because we devoted a lot of uh, content on the website to the passing of the great James Buckley, obviously brother of Bill Buckley, a senator, a State Department official, a judge, and just a a true sparkling gentleman. So what we're going to do is discuss uh, Jim and his legacy a little bit via our favorite pieces or items that were posted on him uh, upon his passing. Dominic. Yeah, first of all, shout out to Jack Butler for um, pulling together a lot of these pieces from, from so many different people. It's been really... I've read all of them, and it, they're they're just so uh, they're so fascinating to read. Uh, all these people who were impacted by by Buckley's life, um, and uh, uh, my pick will be um, Senator Dan Sullivan's uh, remembrance. Um, I thought it was great to have a current senator talking about this, uh, you know, former senator who, at the time he he died, was the livest, uh, was the um, the oldest uh, a former senator. 
Uh, he was uh, at 100 years old. And You um, nearly coined one of those Americanisms that English people laugh at, livingist. Uh, yeah, like I, titleist. I, I, I did not. Or winningist. Did not mean to do it's that. Like, it's, like the, it's like the one time, and, and Dominic's, I don't know, how many, how many times have you been to this podcast now, Dominic? Like 10 times? It's like the one time he's misspoken, and you had to point it out, Charlie. Of course, of course. <laughs> how else do you think he here. will improve? Making up words over here. Look. But yeah, no, um, uh, you know, I've I've always admired uh, Jim Buckley, and I always loved his 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 uh, Senate campaign slogan, uh, which, uh, you know, all these ads, all the ads always ended with, isn't it about time we had a Senator Buckley? And I just, I love that. I love that so much. I think it's, I think those were great ads in his, his campaign, uh, you know, winning as a conservative party candidate in New York state is just unbelievable. And uh, it's, uh, he lived uh, such a full life and did so many different things. And it's, it's amazing that we have all these uh, remembrances up, but yeah, Dan Sullivan's is the one that I'll pick. Uh, he clerked for, Buckley when he was a judge and then uh, obviously served in in the Senate um, had this great uh, story in there about uh, talking about the steering committee and asking him uh, you know oh is the it, you know what that is right and Buckley very calmly saying I was one of the co-founders of the steering committee uh, <laughs> and so uh, I thought that was that was great but um, but yeah I, I've it, it's been it's been great to read about him and I highly recommend his his memoir uh, gleanings from an unplanned life uh, to anyone they're, they're fascinating Noah so I want to put in a, a good word for Jack Butler's piece the decline of American politics in one Senate seat where he traces the occupants of this New York Senate seat from Jim Buckley to Daniel Patrick Moynihan to Hillary Clinton to Kirsten Gillibrand as the seat is reenacting the plot of Flowers for Algernon. But I wanted to part a little bit from the format to cite this piece from 2020 by Neil Freeman on the eve of Jim Buckley receiving the Buckley Prize at NRI's gala, where he recalls doing opposition research for his Senate reelect beginning in 1975. And it sort of illustrates the really sh seismic shift in American politics from 1972 to 1976 and how concerned they were about the mudslinging that they would have to endure in that reelect effort. And Freeman uh, describes the anecdote having plunked down this you know, three-inch folder doing all this opposition research, where he says, uh, Jimmy's criminal career seems to have peaked with the allegation, later refuted, that he had torn one of those tags off a mattress. He's just that mm -hmm. kind of guy. And that was what we expected of our political class Really not too long ago. Well, it seems long ago. Charlie? I liked Arnold Steinberg's piece on Jim Buckley that starts with the author as an undergraduate at UCLA and ends with him working with him in the Senate, having been a volunteer on his campaign, and essentially casts him as a man from another time someone who took legislating seriously and didn't have a great deal of time for all of the bells and whistles that go with it, that was open to changing his mind, uh, who wrote his own speeches, who worked hard on the details of legislation, and really in a more just world or perhaps in a different state would have been re-elected many times over. So I want to give a shout out to Jack Fowler's remembrance of 
Jim, and Jack is just wonderful at, at writing obituaries. I still remember and think back often to one he wrote in 2017 of Alex Beatty. He was the, the male guy at National Review, uh, a bit of an odd fellow, the, the sort of fellow who, who might only uh, <clears throat> be welcomed at a place like National Review and um, died unexpectedly. And, and Jack just wrote a just wonderful, moving, profound remembrance of, of Alex. And it's the same uh, with with Jim putting a a, um, a highlight on, on Jim's um, impish and gentle sense of humor. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National U podcast and you rebroadcast, retransmission, or account this game without the express written permission of National U magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shitty, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Noah. Thank you, Dominic. Thanks to Ball and Branch Sheets and Made in Cookware. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.